Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Well, it's like we got our old Republican Party back because uh, these three are not Trumpy people. Uh, they're pretty elite, pretty established. And it's a testament to the Federalist Society, which is a, a, a conservative legal society that started in the 1980s, designed to create, to turn talent into judgeships. And they've done a fantastic job over the last several decades of producing just this funnel of talent that goes up to all the courts, but especially the Supreme Court. And so whoever the Republican president is, there's a, just this whole series of people who are well-qualified, pretty temperate, well-connected with each other, and they're just ready-made. And so it's made to order. It's not a Trumpy set of people. It's a very establishment set of conservative jurists. Establishment set, Ezra? I think that's right. So Donald Trump made this deal with the Republican establishment, and it went something like this. You don't like me, and I definitely do not like you, but if you unite behind me, you will get your Supreme Court picks. And unusually, he brought out this document. He said, these are the people I will look at. And he's made good on that. There are a lot of places where he's been a very, very unusual president. But these are not very different picks than we would have expected from a president, Ted Cruz. Whoa. So who are those calm, uh, almost erudite voices you just heard there? <laughs> well, that was David Brooks and Ezra Klein uh, on one of the Sunday shows talking about the return to uh, the Republican Party that we know, which is ineffective and completely unable to get stuff done for the American people. Uh, I, I disagree with their characterization of the list that, that the only people who are on there are people who are uh, establishment this or that. But I do think they were approved by two organizations that we all know and respect, the Heritage Foundation and uh, the Federalist Society. And I'm glad to see that the compromise that was made before the election during, during the, the campaign when President Trump was looking for ways to bring others along. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that, that they, uh, that, 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 that compromise worked and, and that the brilliant strategy that was executed by Mitch McConnell to keep the, uh, the whole, you know, uh, Merrick Garland seat open and not to have the hearing on that, that that actually worked um, and that it was really great. And, and it's panning out for us uh, as the American people, because we're going to get someone who's actually interested in upholding the constitution and not interpreting it and not uh, you know, kind of letting it grow and evolve. It's a piece of paper. It means what it means when it was written. That's what it meant. Boom. There you go. There you go. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about what's on the show this hour. We have Arielle Davidson, Economic Research Assistant at the Hoover Institution. She's a contributor at Federalist and Town Hall. And we're going to continue to talk a little bit about the SCOTUS list. Um, if you are interested, I would fantastic poll question over at urbanfamilytalk.com slash poll. Uh, you can just go to the homepage. It's right there at the top. It's urban family polls. And we have these on the latest issues and they're super fun. This one's quick. It's one question. How important is it to you personally who president Trump picks for the next Supreme court seat? And the three options are, this is a game changer for the country. Not that important to me personally. This is the most important pick yet of my lifetime. Okay. So those are your that, those are your options. Go over and take the poll so we can kind of take the temperature of the listening audience on uh, exactly what you guys think about this. It's really going to be a great opportunity um, for us to see how people feel. Uh, so David Brooks as Recline, they had a lengthy little interview there and they went through a lot of different things. Basically, they like the sound of Donald Trump being reined in by establishment Republicans, as they call them. And, and David Brooks and Ezra Klein are not exactly, you know, tea party folks like uh, Ezra Klein is the editor of Vox, Vox.com. That's a, like as far on the left as you can get. And 
I, I find it's interesting that they have so much to say about the strategy when they're going to be opposed to almost any person that would be chosen. And there are some people who are not as conservative on that list of 25. So yes, it's a good list, but the, as we learn more about them, we're finding that some of them are not exactly as perfect as, you know, you know, some are not as perfect as others. I still think Amy Coney Barrett is the best one for them to choose. But if they're not looking for a lightning rod, someone who's going to have a process that's going to be fraught with really just people losing their minds on the left, then they're probably going to choose one of the men. Uh, and, and I think there's some great candidates who are in the running as well, but I'm just, I just think Amy would be a fantastic pick and, and she's still the one I hope he announces tonight, but we'll see. Um, and so you guys going to have, you, you have your popcorn or your, whatever your snack of choices out tonight at uh, 9 PM Eastern. You're going to be watching on your laptops or your TVs. I'm, I'm wondering also another thing for us to consider tonight is as you, as you flip through the channels, maybe you're looking for someplace to watch. I don't know if you guys are like me. I rarely go to my TV anymore. Uh, I usually just go straight to my phone or my laptop. If something is breaking news, I hit Twitter and then I, I head straight over to, you know, it, maybe a Facebook live stream or YouTube. Actually, YouTube is the, so YouTube live streams are pretty awesome because they don't have as many glitches and they don't go down as much. Um, and so sometimes when breaking news hits and I want to know what's going on, I'll go to C-SPAN or to one of the major news orgs YouTube feed and I'll watch the live stream of it there. And so tonight I'm wondering, like, is that what we're going to do? <laughs> I'm not sure. And, and the announcement's not going to be, well, I imagine I was going to say it's not going to be that long, but think about it. President Trump's going to have the mic. So yeah, it's going to last more than about five minutes. He's going to have plenty to say. Um, yeah. So I, I'm wondering what you guys are planning on doing. Are you going to watch a live stream? Or are you going to try to catch it on TV? If you have cable still, we don't, we don't have cable, but if you have cable still, maybe you're going to watch it there. So I have huge, big day tomorrow. I have good stuff and kind of sad stuff going on before I come here to the show. And so I've got to get, like, I'm going to watch it, but I can't stay up all night just, like, yucking it up. I got I to gotta get my information and then go on about my little business. Um, so now let's talk a little bit about the simple majority concept. So you've got Dennis Miller, and he goes on to uh, Fox News to talk to Kennedy um, about this simple majority. And, you know, here at AFA, we believe that the, the Senate should go to the simple majority rule um, on all of the issues so that we can get some legislation passed so the Democrats can stop blocking. I understand why the Senate is set up that way, because they're supposed to reach across the aisle and they're supposed to have a, 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 they're supposed to have a compromise type of a process. So a piece of legislation that comes through is not supposed to only represent one half of the chamber or one interest group in the chamber. But that has ceased to be the case with the split between Republicans and Democrats being almost equal and a couple of the Republicans being turncoats and not really understanding what the Republican Party uh, platform says. And so the, the simple majority of 51 is the only way to get anything done right now. And I totally understand that. And Dennis Miller seems to have the same kind of uh, thought process on it. It's number six. I think that the Democrats should assuage some of their apprehension in this. Mitch McConnell's making a huge tactical error by not going to a simple majority on a lot of this stuff. The Democrats are so angry right now. I guarantee you, if they're talking about packing the court, if they're talking about gerrymandering, if they're talking about no borders, I certainly think that they will be, uh, you know, talking about 
going to a simple majority the second they take the Senate over, the yeah. second. So in a way, if I was a Democrat right now, I'd say, yeah, we're about to get our head handed to us in the Supreme Court, but we're the ones who make the court system so powerful. We always pick that Ninth Circuit. We overrule the will of the people. But what we'll do now is at some point they'll go like that to a 50 49 thing if they take back over the Senate. So that's the only thing I think they have right now. I don't think Gillibrand or any of these people look all that presidential. And indeed, they look a little whiny. And I don't know if you want to throw whiny at this guy, like him or not. I don't think he looks whiny. Hmm. Okay. So something else he said later in the interview that I didn't clip for the show today is, is Dennis Miller was uh, talking to Kennedy about why, um, so you've got this group of what they call Rust Belt voters. And these are people who had previously voted for Democrats because they were union members, they were working class, they felt like the Democratic Party really represented them more than the Republicans who have this reputation for being all country club and upper class and all of that, which is completely like, so there, there's stereotypes, stereotypes are rooted in fact, but they can get blown out of proportion. And so, you you know, there there are certain things about individual parties that attract people and kind of go along with the way that they see themselves and the way they live and move in the world. But in the end, really, it's that Democrats have kind of become much more secular um, in their presentation and how they approach politics. And Republicans still acknowledge the Judeo-Christian founding. It's a group of people, so you're going to have problems in any political party, but their, their platform more closely aligns with a biblical worldview that Christians, uh, you know, claim to profess. Hey, what this is this is my thing. I believe in the Bible. I believe the word of God. I believe the word of God is true and that it's 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 never changing and that it, it remains and that it stands the test of time. And, you know, God, God is not a man. He doesn't lie, et cetera, et cetera. So he went on to explain how these Rust Belt voters are tired of being called stupid by the Democrats because the, the Democrats have said quite a few times since the election that Rust Belt voters voted against their own best interests and that they voted for a man who you know, is is a racist, is this or that, and therefore they are racist. And that uh, there's even been a lot of op-eds that have been written that I haven't gone over on the show because I didn't want to give traction, you know, clicks to those websites where people are are literally saying, well, if if your town's been gutted by heroin, heroin epidemic and the factory closed down and you know, this is all because, you know, this is your fault. It has nothing to do with the fact that the jobs were shipped overseas and you know, there's there's limited dollars and resources in your area because of the low tax base, et cetera. It's, it's just like there's blaming people for their own misery, and then there's an accurate assessment of whatever has happened. And there's been a lot of, in the elite Republican circles, there's been a lot of kind of blaming people for their own misery. And, and that's something that Democrats have often accused Republicans of doing. They've said, well, people who are poor, who live in inner cities, you know, and minorities and people who are here in the country who are immigrants, but they're at the lower rung of the socioeconomic scale, these people are being blamed for being poor. And and maybe that's the way it sounds, some of the things that have been said. But I I, I don't believe that's what people are saying when when Republicans start talking about personal responsibility and culture. Um, well, you're just blaming people. I I think it's kind of insulting to the people who actually are minorities and try their best to live well, to live a godly life. Culture matters. If you don't believe you should teach your kids to speak proper English, they're not going to speak proper English. They're also going to have a hard time getting a job. If you don't feel like you need to teach your kids, not only not to kick, hit, bite, punch, you know, that type of stuff, keep your hands and feet to yourself, but also don't hang around people who do that, 
you need to report people who do wrong things, turn them in in school, turn them into the police. You need to, if the police ask you a question, you don't run, you stay there, you answer their questions. There's just some basic cultural norms that black people and white people and Asian people and Hispanic people all practice, but then there are some who don't. And so you don't see this huge push to like normalize behavior that you see in socioeconomically depressed white areas. But you do see a push to normalize behavior that you see in socioeconomically depressed black areas and Hispanic areas to push that out as normal behavior and normal culture. One of the biggest ones in in that category is one that you often, the first thing out of someone's mouth is going to be an Uncle Tom when you start talking about the out of wedlock birth rate for black women. I mean, you want to pick a fight? Bring up the fact that 78% of black children are born out of wedlock and that the number is now cresting above 40% for the Hispanic community and it's approaching 40% for the white community. Study after study, anthropologists are now studying this trend because they don't understand why people are now opting, making the decision. And by people, I mean women. And these women, they're they're now, it's no longer a black thing. It's now a woman thing. Women are saying, well, I'm just, I'm just going to live with this guy. And, you know, now I'm pregnant. Up Now he's out the door. Now I'm a single mom. Don't talk to me about, it's my body. It's my decision. It's my choice. I don't need a husband. I don't need a man. I'm a feminist. I don't need these kinds of behaviors are not only becoming normalized, they're growing. So it's a negative behavior that we as a society should discourage. But because we normalized it or allowed it to be normalized in the in one community, it has now seeped out into popular culture and it is it's become normalized. It's norming. Once that norming has occurred, then you have a hard time telling people. You shouldn't have children out of wedlock because then you've got all these millions of people who are like, well, are you judging me? Are you saying I'm a bad mother? Are you are you saying my family doesn't count? I don't believe it's about judging people who are already in that situation and saying you're a horrible person. I do believe it's about saying we want better for you. And so we want to still discourage this behavior. You are going to walk out. The, the life that you've created for yourself, but we don't want to encourage it. And so you see there's a difference in one, one party encourages these behaviors to become normalized and one party is still fighting back against it, however feebly, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's not what I, I think, it's not optimal, but at least one is still fighting back against that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex discussion. When we get back, we're going to have Ariel Davidson. We're going to talk about Supreme Court and so much more right here on Stay Stand and Right. Keep it here. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for a health care plan, or more importantly, if you signed up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare. MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have hundreds of thousands of members all across the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2.5 billion of each other's medical bills. Best of all, you could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is about 500 bucks a month. 
Your savings may be less or more, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. Here's the number to find out more. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. Just hit star star 345. That's star star 345. Star star 345. Hello, I'm Pastor Joseph Parker, and this is Daily Time in the Word. It's our goal to help you better understand the great blessing of spending time in God's Word every single day. As always, we appreciate one who understands the Word of God and is seeking to read the Word of God each and every day. Specifically, parents, I want to challenge and encourage you to start the habit of having your children to read three chapters out loud to you each and every day. In addition to that, I want to encourage you to Help your children learn and memorize the Ten Commandments, at least in short form. The Ten Commandments are these specifically, found in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself any graven images. Number three, you shall not take God's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not tell lies. Ten, you shall not covet. It's good to have our children to memorize them and to know what each of them means. That's very, very important. Remember, parents, when you have your children to read the Word of God out loud to you, you're helping them to plant God's precious and powerful Word in their minds and their hearts. And it's good for us to pray the Ten Commandments with our children each and every day. Let's take a moment to do that even now. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Help us to put you first in everything we do. Help us to make no graven images. Help us to not take your name in vain. Help us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Help us to honor our fathers and our mothers. Help us to not murder. Help us to not commit adultery. Help us to not steal. Help us to tell the truth. Help us to not covet in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program, you guys. It's it's never uh, it's never an, a boring time over here at Shea Washington, where we broadcast the Stacy on the Right show out of and connect through to our syndicators over at American Family Radio and UrbanFamilyTalk.com. It's a blessing to be with you today, and it's a wonderful time to have our next guest on the program, who is an expert, and I love seeing her opinions shared on huge platforms across the country, and so it's always a privilege to have her here with us and to have some of her time so that she can speak to us, and today is no different. She's going to share with us about SCOTUS. It's Arielle Davidson, Economic Research Assistant at the Hoover Institution. She's a contributor to thefederalist.com and townhall.com. And you can find her all over on the best podcasts and the best networks, giving her opinions and, and her expert uh, informational knowledge. So, Ariel, thanks for joining us today. I am humbled by your introduction. Thanks, Nisi, for having me. As always, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad to chat with you, especially about this subject, because I can't wait to hear your analysis. Because over the weekend, there was a material change. A name was added. And you know me. I try to unplug every now and again. So this weekend... I had so much to do. I have so much stuff going on at my house, like with kids. And so I unplugged and then I plugged back in last night. I'm like, wait, who is this? What? I, 
So first of all, who are the front runners now? Update us because the announcement's tonight and I can't wait because I'm ready to move on to like, well, the cat and dog fight that's going to happen. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like we're on like Trump TV show and we're just, it's the reality TV show. We're going to find out who the winner is at 9 p.m. this evening. Um, yeah. You know, it's really, it's been interesting to watch it unfold. It gives me a lot of confidence though to know that Trump is really, is going to be pulling names from this list of 25 uh, potential nominees put together by Federal Society and Heritage Foundation. You know, I will commend President Trump on being uh, extremely transparent about this process. It's unusual for us to have this level of access to sort of the deliberations that are taking place behind the selection of the nominee. So I really do. I am grateful for that. Um, I personally, you know, there's lots of names that are being thrown about. I personally think it's going to come down to Barrett and Kavanaugh. I think that um, my personal choice, I'd love to see, uh, I'd love to see Barrett nominated to the Supreme Court for a host of different reasons that you know we can get into. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would, I would say that that's probably the, the two names that I would narrow it down to for a variety of different reasons. Um, they both present sort of differing options. I think Kavanaugh has a better chance of being confirmed because he's a little bit more, I would say, uh, closer to the center than um, Barrett is. But I think that's what appeals to me about Barrett is that if we really want to reinvigorate Scalia on the Supreme Court or the spirit of Scalia, I think she would be definitely a closer step in the right direction. So. Oh, Ariel. So I'm with you. I, I'm not surprised that we have like a unimind here about uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I think she presents the best opportunity for us to, you know, um, kind of ferret out what a lot of Americans are still unaware of, which is the Democrats absolutely they they have they find women with seven kids who are conservatives who believe in god and practice you know fundamental christianity to be anathema to public life and they don't want them out there talking or adjudicating or doing anything um and i i don't think a, a lot of democrats don't really believe that and i think if she were the nominee not only would she be fantastic but she would also be very illustrative in, in exposing that um, but I'm seeing on, and I know this has absolutely zero, like we don't know if this is the best thing or the worst thing, but a bunch of pundits that I know are on Predicted, And, you know, Predicted is a website where they take whatever the issue of the day is, whether it's who's going to win a Senate seat or who's going to win the presidency. In this case, it's who's going to be the nominee. And they're now putting number one, the, the number one chance of being nominated is given to Thomas Hardiman, who I know very little about. Brett Kavanaugh is number two. And then Amy Coney Barrett has dropped 19 cents in the running, and she's at the very, very low level of 17 cents, which the cents are people betting on this. So people bet pennies on this, and it's supposed to be indicative of what's actually going to happen. What do you? What are? What are your thoughts on Hardiman? Oi, <laughs> I know. Um, I know. I'm not a huge fan of Hardiman. I just don't think you'd be a reliable vote uh, when it comes to uh, issues that are you know, near and dear to conservatism and just preserving individual liberties, I don't think we'll be able to count on Hardiman. I think he's the most concerning choice of the entire um, short list of about four people I've seen. He makes me actually incredibly nervous. Uh, I think, you know, if Hardiman were to be selected, I actually would like to see Republicans vote against him. Um, I think that would actually be the best you know, the best way to go about this, to just put a block and, you know, go back to the drawing board and have another name selected. I mean, again, that would, you know, show a more fractious process, which is probably not what we're going for when we want to go for a kind of a united front. Um, but, you know, again, we're talking about somebody that could serve for 30 to 40 years. 
And so when we make that type of selection, we want to be 100% certain that this person is going to be a stalwart for conservative values and also just be somebody that, you know, can be reliable um, and we can be be trustworthy in terms of their decision-making. You know, you don't really want to put someone on the court who could be a wild card. Um, You know, and I just, I see him as being pretty problematic. So I would, I would hope actually that conservatives, uh, you know, would vote against his selection. That would be my, that would be ultimately my hope. Um, and that sounds a little dramatic, but again, you know, we're not talking about a position for five to ten years. We're talking about someone who could serve for decades, um, and that's hugely important. <sighs> so that's concerning to me. I'm seeing a lot of uh, back chatter about uh, Hardiman's views on the First Amendment and. One of the things I think is not going to be satisfactory to Americans uh, is is that an opportunity where we could really put anyone we want there because we have some red state Democrats who are going to have to say yes to whoever is chosen for the president to choose someone who is kind of a borderline pick who might be another suitor or, uh, you know, God forbid, I know Justice Roberts has been great on a lot of things, but he also affirmed the constitutionality of Obamacare. And it was really one of those, you know, I, I mean, we, we just can't get over that one. And we don't need any more of that. And I, I noticed the Democrats don't have any problem with having reliably liberal judges. They appoint liberals. The liberals act like liberals the whole time. They don't really join over with the, Repub- with the Republicans on the court. But the Republicans seem to have a problem just basically staying on the court as a Republican. And so we need someone who's very strong. And I think Amy Comey Barrett has really demonstrated that she has the ability to withstand heavy scrutiny, and she does so calmly with a very chipper attitude, which is, you know, fantastic. Right. I mean, I'd love to see Trump pick someone who's really been an advocate of originalism and a textual approach to the Constitution and not treating it as like a living document. And so you, the reason, you know, I think when you see Supreme Court justices and you're trying to determine their sort of slant, it's really less of a slant and just how much they look at the Constitution as you know, a living, changing document, or how much they look at the Constitution as, you know, these are our founding guiding principles, and we are going to stick to them as much as humanly possible. And Hmm. that's, you know, that's where Amy Barrett really shines compared to the rest of the nominees within the pool. I mean, she really is someone that sees the Constitution not as a, you know, a living document, but something that is, um, you know, strict and must be adhered to, and it will, and it allows for a level of consistency within the government. And so that, to me, is really the type of question we need to ask when we think about who we'd like to see on the Supreme Court. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm hopeful again. I'm very hopeful. I have my fingers crossed. But we'll see what happens. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about um, when once the announcement is made, whoever it is then we have this process to go through. And they're saying, I've, I've heard much talk about the process lasting around 140 days or less. Um, and that was before the, the couple of weeks were given for the president to actually make his pick and, and actually announce the, the nomination. So that's a pretty short timeline. And that wraps up before the November midterms, oddly enough. So do you see that actually happening? But Mitch McConnell seemed pretty sure that he was going to be able to get it done. I think he'll get it done. I mean, I think he's made miracles happen in the last couple of years. I'd argue that you know, he was instrumental in uh, Trump's election in terms of holding off um, the Merrick Garland vote and making sure that that seat would be open. And, you know, 30% of Republican voters said that SCOTUS is the number one issue when they were voting in the 2016 presidential election. 
And so even those who were sort of lukewarm on Trump really weren't Trump fans would prefer to have a Republican in office make that decision and have had Hillary Clinton in office. And so I think, you know, we owe a lot of gratitude. You know, Mitch McConnell doesn't do everything correctly, and we, you and I have talked about that at length before. You know, he definitely has his shortcomings, but I will mm-hmm. say that he's done a fantastic job up to this point of, you know, ensuring that what's, what should happen will happen. And he's, you know, put up with a lot of harassment, I would say, even from, you know, elected officials on the left and even some on the right as well who really tried to force the vote, and he stood his ground. And so I'm, I'm hopeful to see him, you know, make magic happen again. Uh, I think he has, he has a lot of confidence in himself, and I think that's helped to carry him forward quite a bit. So, you know, like I said, I'd like to see him make magic happen. I'm with you. And you I know, think I've been, yeah, yeah I, I do. I, I think he can do it too, Ariel. And I, so one of the things that I've been really tough about, well, there's been a number of issues I've been really tough about Mitch McConnell. He's not been my favorite. He's not even been close to my favorite, to be honest. Um, but but that that move from a couple of years ago where he decided, you know, this just isn't something we're doing in an election year and he had precedent. It's it's clear to me that he actually took the time to have staffers look it up and make sure that he was on the right side historically talking about presidential elections, not just any old election. And he really he held the seat open and it was a terrible time for him, I think, you know, in the halls of Congress and on the Hill where people were probably being quite rude to him personally. But he just was like, I, I just don't care. I'm just, you know, I just, I have a job to do. And, I, and this is something that's going to help secure the presidency. And it really was strategically, probably it's going to go down as, in history as one of the most instrumental decisions on behalf of a, a leader of the Senate um, in swaying not just public opinion, but the opportunity for Donald Trump to have these two early in his, in his administration picks it wouldn't be the same. And the rulings that just came out a couple of weeks ago on labor and other things, those wouldn't have gone in the correct direction had Merrick Garland been on the court. So the ripple effects will be continuing on. I really think for decades of the decision that Mr. McConnell made. And so, yeah, I, I've, it was a fantastic decision. And so it's really kind of changed my, uh, you know, <laughs> like my demeanor towards Mr. McConnell, <laughs> leader, leader McConnell. He's, uh, he's kind of won me over of sorts. Um, but I, I'm just, so we've got that. And so I just, as we close out the interview, I want to talk a little bit about like future speak. Neither of us has a crystal ball, but we do know that we have a couple of justices. One's 85 RBG, you know, she's just holding on for dear life. And do you think she makes it to the end of president Trump's first term? Or do you see her as being the next one who will be creating a vacancy on the court? I I have no idea, but I will say it's interesting to see the number of articles that have come out recently uh, praising RBG's workout routine. You know, there's this fervent <laughs> desire on the on the left, in particular, to convince themselves that RBG's you know going to be uh, serving on the court for another ten years and to not worry because she'll make it to the next Democratic um, administration. And in my mind, I think you know that just evinces that there's some nervousness on the left about how much longer RBG will serve, um, you know, whether she'll decide to step down or not. You know, I think um, it's, will be, it'll be interesting to see how the next you know, year to two years unfold and what President Trump's popularity looks like. And if it does seem like he's going to be on for another term, I think that'll change the dynamics of the court a bit and how, people, how much longer people decide to serve for. Uh, I think if, you know, there are certain 
uh, justices on the left on the court who say, you know what, uh, it doesn't look like President Trump's going to win 2020. Good, I'll just make it up through then, and then I'll wait until there's another Democrat in the White House. Um, but I don't know. I think President Trump actually has a pretty decent shot at winning 2020, and so I think that'll cause some seismic waves on the Supreme Court, for sure, because he could end up replacing, you know, up to four justices total. I mean, that changes the entire dynamic of the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's so bad that I've seen lengthy articles by leftists saying they're going to pack the court, they're going to fill the court with 15 people, you know, they're going to balance the court back out, they're going to do this and that, which is an indicator to me that uh, they see the handwriting on the wall, too. And and I, I agree with you. There's a there's a huge chance he could uh, win in 2020. I mean, um, um, barring any unforeseen health issues or anything like that, you know, God forbid, he he could very well be back again for four more years. We didn't think Obama would get reelected, but he did. So if he could, anyone could. That's that's my And the economy, yeah, and the economy is really strong right now and unemployment is quite low. And so I think, you know, when people are seeing their paychecks at a higher level and they're feeling good and they're feeling confident and they're feeling positive about the economy, that makes a huge difference. Um, and I don't, mm-hmm. I think Democrats underestimate the power of that outside the urban centers. Yeah, absolutely. To their peril, Arielle Davidson, economic research assistant at the Hoover Institution, contributor to Federalist and townhall.com, and fan favorite on Stacy on the Right. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Stacy. Always a blast. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you again soon. So we are just moving on through the program today. I want to give you guys a little heads up. We will be making an announcement, a programming announcement here on the show. Um, I'm actually thinking it's going to be next week, but I'll give you more updates on that as I know more and I'm able to share wonderful news for the Stacey on the Right show and such a blessing to be able to continue to be here with you. I want to send you over to StaceyOnTheRight.com. Hit the subscribe button. I'm Stacey on the Right on Twitter and Instagram, which you can always find something new that I've posted on one of those locations. Um, And you can also go to AFR.net. You can find the stand, the blog for uh, American Family Radio. They're great pieces over there by hosts on the network. You can go check those out. You can also find um, really great content for um, everything that we're doing here at UrbanFamilyTalk.com as well. So when we get back, we're going to be coming in from the break with some audio of Lindsey Graham blaming China for the North Korean rebuke. That whole process has kind of fallen down in the ditch, um, which we said could happen, right? So we... We have no expectations of the dictator of North Korea other than he's going to be the dictator of North Korea. So people are going to people and he's going to be a dictator. So we'll see how that cracks out. Lindsey Graham had a really good interview. So we have a little audio from that. And then we'll take some calls. If you'd like, you can call into the show. Um, so we'll be right back with more Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hi, I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki. From airing the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference coming up August 17th and 18th. The list of speakers is amazing. We have Ryan Baumberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Bert Harper and his wife Jan, Stacy Washington, Lonnie Poindexter, Pastor Dexter Sanders, and we'll be there too. There's a direct attack by the enemy on marriage and family. 
and babies in the womb are treated like political footballs instead of life. We want to encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. If we can get our families on track, a lot of society's problems could be solved. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is from Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. I'm Will Addison, director of Urban Family Talk. We desire to be a movement of time tellers. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, The sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the time, to know what Israel ought to do. In these perilous times, God is raising up a people of discernment who will see, pray, and act. We sound the alarm as watchmen. We cry aloud that God's people may be activated for His service. Join the movement at urbanfamilytalk.com. Is God calling you to pursue theological graduate education? What's keeping you from taking the first step? Is it time? What if you could choose from flexible class options? Is it money? What if competitively priced seminary offered academic scholarships? Do you think you're alone? What if your classmates were just like you, balancing careers and families with seminary? Hello, I'm Dr. John Nyhoff, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Take the first step. Visit wbs.edu. This is Just a Minute with Stacy Washington. Slow down, moms. That sounds pretty counterintuitive, doesn't it? Haven't we all wished to work faster, smarter, and better? But that isn't what God has for us. We have been given life to enjoy abundantly, which means that we must prune our activities for our own sanity. As American culture moves at an ever-increasing speed, God calls moms to slow down and say no sometimes. Not only is there power in doing so, there is relief because we must use our time wisely. We often feel the pressure to say yes because we don't want other parents to question our fitness. This fear leads to overscheduling and stress. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. Pray about your family commitments and feel free to say no. God will bless you for it. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Would agree that we could use some reform. For instance, ICE targeting individuals who haven't done anything wrong, who are just, you know, housekeepers or working at restaurants. Those are individuals who are working their hardest to become a part of the American dream. And so abolishing ICE isn't realistic and it doesn't make any sense. Okay. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here today. Happy Monday to you. I want to remind you that tonight is the announcement by the president of who his Supreme Court nominee is going to be. And I know I mentioned a website called Predict It. Um, and I, I've seen a couple of people asking, well, what, what was that again? Like, what, is, what, are, what are we talking about here? Um, so sometimes people put information into these websites that quote unquote predict what's going to happen. Um, and so they they will go by back channel um, people who, you know, work at the Supreme Court, people who work in the Federalist Society, people who have contacts at the White House. And so it's all very, you know, it's nebulous. It's not, you know, it's like anonymous sources. You know, sometimes when someone says this is from an anonymous source and you trust that person, you're like, boom, I trust that. And other times, you know, if it's New York Times and they say, Anonymous source, you're like, yeah, okay. You might as well just say you found that on a, um, you know, on, on a napkin in the trash. I'm, I don't believe that. 
So it, it really hinges on whether or not people place their trust within the mechanism. I do want to give a little bit of an update. Um, I, I have a list of links from IFS.org. And um, IFS is the in Institute for Free Speech. And as we were talking to Ariel Davidson, and she was sharing about Hardiman, she has some reticence there with him. I see a lot of that uh, online. People are saying they're kind of reticent towards Hardiman. Um, so this piece here was published July the 3rd by IFS staff. And uh, it's the Institute for Free Speech. Uh, I don't know if they're nonpartisan. I don't have a lot of background on them, but I got the list of links. That it's basically background reading information to kind of buff up on who this person is. Because it, it's honestly, let, let's keep it real here. It would be impossible for me to have a regular life and to read up on every single one of the 25 nominees. So I spent some time reading up on the ones who were the front runners. It just turns out that this name has become more prominent over the weekend. And as I said, I was unplugged, which I recommend that you do as well. If you want to keep your sanity and you want to not have, uh, you know, so many bags under your eyes, you unplug from the social media on the weekend. Now, there's multiple news accounts, including one in the Sunday Washington Post, reporting that Donald Trump's short list includes U.S. Appeals Court Judge Amy Coney Barrett of Indiana, U.S. Appeals Court Judge Thomas Hardiman of Pennsylvania, U.S. Appeals Court Judge Brett Kavanaugh of Maryland, and U.S. Appeals Court Judge Raymond Kethledge. So only one of those names is new to me, and that's uh, Judge Hardiman. Um, oh, um, so what I want to what I want to do here is just give a little bit of this analysis. So apparently IFS actually gave analysis on um, Judge Kethledge and Hardiman on numerous occasions before right now. They have tried to compare the records, but sometimes that's really difficult because judges don't all rule on the same types of cases. They rule on the cases that come before them. So a judge on one circuit court or appellate court is going to listen to the cases that come before them, and there may not be a good way to compare the cases. So you can say, you know, apples to apples, he ruled this way on this case, which was the same as this case where she ruled that way. So that's that's the kind of, it's nuanced. And, and so you want to take the issues and see where they came down or, you know, textualists and all of that. Remember, we, we went over that on the show as well. So Kethledge's opinions or those he joined were often outstanding. Um, David Keating in the analysis, Lavin v. Husted is one of the best that have been read by IFS in preparing the reports. Kethledge's careful scrutiny of a contribution ban is outstanding. And so I'm going to kind of skim through that. Um, we've already talked about Judge Kethledge here on the show. And so let's let's move through that part and get to um, Honorable Thomas Hardiman. So he's been on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit from 2007 to present, the United States District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania from 2003 to 2007. Um, he had a, an opinion in the Third Circuit in 2018, Wilmoth v. Secretary of State of New Jersey, in which he joined an opinion that reviewed the constitutionality of a law banning out-of-state petition circulators under the First Amendment. The opinion is marked not precedential, meaning it doesn't set a precedent, but is a solid analysis that vacates and remands a clearly flawed district court ruling to dismiss the case. The plaintiffs challenged a New Jersey law requiring that persons circulating petitions on behalf of candidates for national office be residents of New Jersey. Appellants argue that the law in question, New Jersey statute and 
and then it gives some numbers, imposes an impermissible burden on their First Amendment right to engage in core political speech. So it doesn't really say if the uh, if the opinion is, you know, other than saying it's outstanding and that he, he joined in and, and that was a good opinion for him. And so I want to go back and give um, a little bit more information, um, more on Judge Thomas Hardiman's views on free speech. And we're again at the Ind- Independent or Institute for Free Speech. And they then go over a couple of other cases that he heard. And basically what I've heard, what I've seen back channel is that people don't feel like he's strong enough on the first amendment. And it seems to be here that he ruled on a case NAACP versus the city of Philadelphia. The NAACP wanted visitors to Philadelphia along with other cities to know of its new criminal justice initiative the publicity blitz included buying advertising space on monitors at the airport, decrying domestic incarceration to population ratios. The controversy averse airport management declined and belatedly wrote a policy banning most non-commercial advertisements. The NAACP then sued on First Amendment grounds. So the majority found the airport's non-commercial advertising ban was unreasonable, even in a limited public forum and placed the burden on the government and found its proffered justifications of revenue maximization and controversy avoidance insufficient. The city's inconsistent and ad hoc explanations for the policy troubled the majority throughout the opinion. Judge Hardiman dissented. He argued that the government's ban was a reasonable attempt to avoid controversy, that the airport officials hating and halting and sometimes contradictory discovery answers were satisfactory, and that the ban was viewpoint neutral. In addition to being reasonable, Hardiman claimed the ban was viewpoint neutral, and he addressed imprimatur by saying, in addition, the power to express non-commercial positions and exclude those to the contrary, the city could create an environment in which passersby are led to believe that the city's positions are uncontested. So, there's more to read about that. And what I'll do, if, if you're interested in this type of heavy reading, heavy lifting, I'll put the links to these pieces about Hardiman on the Facebook page. You can check those out. And I think, you know, it, it might be worth it for, you know, my kind of wonk friends. If you're interested in that, it might be worth it to take a look. And as I go through and continue to kind of read through what has been shared with me, if I see other things about Hardiman that are illustrative of who he is as a jurist. I'll definitely post those as well. The big deal is we're going to have a press release from Project 21 with our comments about what, you know, the, the, the pick that is announced and, and where we see it going from there. And that'll come out shortly after the announcement. So look for that on social media. I'll post it on Facebook as well. Um, and for the rest of it, we just have the time to kind of, you know, what, what else can we do? But wait, what, what can we do? Um, we can be happy that we get to have this pick and this announcement. Um, so we also have, again, so many examples of people losing their stuffing. So here, here's another one. You've got this guy beaten with a skateboard in an alleged San Francisco hate crime. And the images of the skateboard, he was beaten with a skateboard until the skateboard broke into pieces. A teenager assaulted a man on the street with a skateboard. 
and they're calling it a hate crime. The man who was assaulted is white. Um, and the guy who beat him made racial statements while he was beating him to a pulp. It occurred on Sunday afternoon at about 2.30 uh, at the 700 block of Market Street. And it, this is in San Francisco. And this man, between the ages of 17 and 19, struck a 22-year-old white man with a skateboard and made racist comments towards the victims. Uh, towards the victims. So I want to make a point here and, and draw this together with some of the other stories that we've been seeing. So there's been this kind of rash of incidents where a white person has called the police on a black person at a pool or while they're putting a coupon book together or while they're sleeping in a dorm or something like that. And what I propose to kind of stop that behavior where people aren't really breaking the law, but the police get called anyway and the person getting the police called on them is black and the person doing the calling is white is to simply, for, first of all, do unto others, y'all. Second of all, we should have the, the many, many municipalities have laws that say if you call the police and you call, do so without any justification, that you have to pay a little fine. Usually it's like 100, 150 bucks, sometimes 200 bucks, depending on the size of the city. I think we should have those. And it's not because I've never called the police before or because I don't think it's right to call the police, but we need to execute good judgment there. We also need to remember that no matter how many laws we pass, you're always going to have someone with hate in their heart who's looking for an opportunity to be violent or to do evil to someone else. Sometimes it's racially motivated, but it doesn't really matter if it's racially motivated or not when you've been harmed by someone, you've been harmed by someone. And I think we're getting sucked into these discussions where it's, well, it's doing this while black, it's doing that while black. We're always going to have people who are just like little police people who are running, um, running around doing mean things to people. We're always going to have sinners on earth. We're all sinners. We're always going to have people making mistakes. But I just, I want to continue to put this out there on a daily basis for us to, you know, first consider that the other person is a human being and try to govern ourselves accordingly. And when we bump into, because we're all going to do it, you this is an imperfect world full of imperfect people. We're going to bump into people who are rude, nasty, hurt, you know, lashing out, afflicted, what have you. And it's annoying to me when I bump into these people. Um, you know, it, I don't think anybody is above being completely annoyed and upset by something like that. But if we always say it's about race, how far can we really go with that one? With millions of people from different backgrounds all over the country interacting and, you know, working together and doing everything together. And we are doing so pretty much, you know, it, it's going pretty well. And I think we get sucked into constantly having these discussions about it's a news story, right? And we've talked about this before on the show. We hear stories of terrorism in, you know, some country around the world. And I don't, this, this is not me saying these acts of terrorism don't matter because they're not in America. But when we had less access to information, we learned about the news once a day at the six o'clock news or, you know, before that it was even less frequent. And so we didn't have as many opportunities to be concerned and upset about the behavior of someone halfway around the world or halfway across the country. So we had to kind of be concerned with our local news and then national news. It concerned us, but it wasn't a constant onslaught and barrage. If you just look at the news, you would think that white people and black people are just at each other's throats all over the country every minute of every day. But the truth is, everywhere we go, we, we, 
we're so used to it, we don't even we don't even recognize it. For most of us, we rarely see anyone disagree in public. Like weeks and weeks and weeks can go on in, but then we might see someone cut someone else in line and, you know, a rude altercation or something about it. When immigrants talk about being in America, immigrants to this country from places where there is constant violence, they sometimes describe how there'll be someplace in America, and this is specifically women, they'll describe sitting somewhere in America and seeing a group of men and boys maybe playing basketball or, or, you know, throwing a Frisbee or what have you, or just walking down the street. And then they realize in that moment, I'm not afraid. I'm just, I'm by myself and I'm in public and there's a group of men and I'm not afraid. And then they express their exuberance at being so free and so safe. And that's a part of their experience as new Americans. And so I just caution every one of us, myself included, to not get caught up in the news of the news cycle and the outrage of people being people because it will make us forget how blessed we are to be here and how much freedom and safety and God-given security we have here in this country. Could it be better? Absolutely. But it's pretty awesome now. Let's not forget that. Our gratitude will go a long way in helping us to get along with each other. All right, that's the show. We have to be wise in these times. We have to be informed, but we also have to be grateful to God. Be back with you tomorrow. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.